I'm a big believer that, that saying yes is a much more interesting alternative than saying no. You know, analyse it. Is it going to genuinely, you know, physically hurt or endanger you? If it's not, then it's possibly worth giving a go. It drives wives wicked. It makes such a golden brown pot. It must be lots of fun to be a mother. I've got something to apologize for. I wore my good suit because it was plain and neat. Afraid of not knowing what is proper? This yellow fluffo is such a short shortening. Hi, I'm Susan Osman, and this is Been There, Done That, a show about women who are shaping our world and not just striving, but thriving. Experienced, smart women who are redefining what it means to be a woman in the workplace. You know I can't work without a good breakfast. All right, class, stop typing, please. All right, class, stop typing, please. This week, I talked to one of these women, Siobhan Newton was one of the early female firefighters. She was a business research fellow at Sheffield University. She lectured at Sheffield Business School. She was a business consultant for small enterprises. And then she turned her hand at the pottery kiln and now produces amazing ceramic plates and bowls for Michelin star chefs. And she joins me now. Hi, Siobhan. Hi, Susan. Now, a female firefighter. What made you be a firefighter? Uh, pretty much somebody told me I couldn't be. Um, it wasn't quite as childish <laughs> as somebody, somebody dared me. But I, I was, you know, I grew up in a small village. I was in the small village pub and somebody was retiring from the fire service. So obviously there was a party and uh, it just started as a joke. And by the end of the evening, someone for whom I had very low levels of respect uh, made the statement that wouldn't it be funny, you are at least tall enough because... Back in those dark days of 1990, uh, you had to be over five foot six. And actually, the specification was closer to that of a, a fast jet fighter pilot than, than a, a, a firefighter of, of your the spec was based on the RAF specifications from World War II. Uh, what was it like? Did you have to be physically fit? Uh, did you take risks? Uh, you had to be physically fit, absolutely. Um, and you had to pay attention to your training. I think it's like any of those jobs that seem extreme or unusual from the outside. Um, if you have committed to the training well, it's probably an analogy for a lot. If you committed to the training well, stuff that might feel initially to be high risk becomes a series of separate smaller risks that you manage out, such that you know the overall impression is not of extreme risk or kind of threat to life and limb. And in actual fact, the fire service increasingly um, would discourage people from, from risking their own lives. The idea being that, you know, you are there to preserve life, protect property and render humanitarian services. How interesting. Interesting that you were really pioneering the way for other women. What, what do, how did the men react to you as a, a female firefighter? Did they take you seriously? I think I was quite lucky. I think I had quite a lot of um, kind and sensible people around me. And I think um, that I was pretty, pretty clear in defending my sense of self from the very beginning. I mean, I remember my, my interview, I was asked a whole series of questions which were illegal then and would certainly be illegal now. Do you think that you would be able to fight a fire when you have your period? Uh, to which I responded, I suggest you, you give joking. me a job. And if you tell, no, no, oh, no, no. completely genuine. Um, so I said, I suggest you give me the job. And if after a year you can tell me when my period is, then let's have this conversation again. 
I'm actually speechless. I I felt that being speechless at the time would not be to uh, my benefit or or the benefit of perhaps other women that might be in the same situation. And I did also then um, feedback that I didn't think that that was a useful way to begin conversations. But it it did kind of prompt me to, um, I was privileged to be involved in setting up um, a network of female firefighters, which is still in operation to this day. Um, we yeah, we were called Networking Women in the Fire Service. It's now called Women in the Fire Service. Um, and the idea was that we would get together and kind of share best practice. And there were so few of us that different brigades would, they didn't really have the absorptive capacity to understand what issues might need to be looked at. And actually, a lot of the time, my personal opinion was that having female firefighters identified weak management practices and structures as opposed to um, the women actually causing problems, which was generally kind of said to us, so, well, you know, having women will just cause problems. I went to a fire, and it was, it was, it was a chimney fire. It wasn't, you know, a terribly exciting one. And I walked into the sitting room, and um, the beautifully clad, you know, cashmere twin set, pearls, tweed, you know, signature kind of small fluffy dog in background um put down her knitting and aghast looked at her husband and said oh my good god harry it's a girl Mm, i can imagine what other daft questions did you get asked apart from you know are you going to be able to work when it's your period oh the traditional stuff about you know was i planning to have children and when and and what did i expect that would mean um i got um a lot about what happens when you hit, you know, so at this point I'm 21. Um, what happens when you hit the menopause? Um, you know, everyone knows that, um, you know, women fall apart then. So that wasn't from, that wasn't my actual interview, but that was, you know, a question that I got asked by someone who had expressed an opinion that um, he was uncomfortable with the impact that women might have in the fire service. Um, unfortunately, I'd done some research and actually pointed out that, um Physically, uh, women lose proportionally less of their strength during those kinds of vital 40s, 50s and 60s decades than uh, their male counterparts do. Um, And uh, suggested that um, he looked in the mirror himself before considering that that was an issue. So sexism was pretty rife. I also think that people would, there was a side where people were really trying to make it work but didn't know how. So um, one of the things that happened to quite a lot of us was you'd, You'd have senior managers, very senior managers, like what used to be referred to as the top landing, would appear on your fire station to see how you were doing when they hadn't set foot on the fire station for five years, 10 years, 15 years. And so that always felt like, you know, extra um, observance, extra um, consideration was being given. And that didn't necessarily give, you know, I was lucky. My 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 team were incredibly welcoming. and. Uh, one of them, um, the very wonderful Chris, who um, sadly uh, died in a car accident that we were called to several years after I joined, um, he uh, said, I really like you. I've known you your whole life. Uh, I can see why you'd want to do this job. But I was in the Navy when they allowed women to join. He was a merchant seaman. And he said, and it was a total disaster. And I can't see how it would work any differently within the fire service he said i'll do everything i can to support you and i'll work with you and it'll be a pleasure to work with you he said but i think it's a mistake for the the culture of the fire service i said okay 
Uh, well, let's just crack on. Thanks for being honest. At least we've had the conversation. Um, and I'm always better knowing than guessing. You know, that sense of stuff being said behind your back is always insidious, I think. Um, and I didn't have that at all. Um, and about 18 months, two years later, he sat me down and he said, I owe you an apology. I was wrong. What you've done, what having women in the fire service, what having you on this station has done is it's made us all think differently and think more about how we do our jobs. And I think that is going to be a huge benefit. Um, and that was a really proud moment because, you know. Uh, that oh, was very a, big, very big of him. It was, yeah, a, it very, was a very, very big and very kind, um, very fascinating uh, man who sadly died at the age of 32, but um, has left a brilliant legacy of, uh, of a lot of positive stories like that. I suppose, as you say, you know, culturally, you know, you were, you were one of the early firefighters. It must have been, and you know, must have been, must be hard for a lot of men, you know, in, in the army, in the navy, on the football pitch, on the cricket pitch. You know, women are coming into their own and all sorts of um, spheres of life. And I suppose for that guy to kind of say, "Joe, I was wrong," and you've proved me wrong, was actually, um, you know, very, very open-hearted of him, actually. Do you think things have changed since? I do. I absolutely do. Um, you know, there are always exceptions that prove rules. Um, but just, you know, proudly reading the feeds of the Women in the Fire Service uh, Facebook feed and, and their website, just the tone, you can tell that stuff's changed, you know. Uh, no big bureaucracy is ever perfect, is it? But that's more about bureaucracies than it is about human humanity. You thought after 12 years of the fire service, time for change. You then did all sorts of things. You, went, you lectured at the Sheffield Business School, your business research fellow, your business consultant for small enterprises. What a difference did that make to your life to go from being very physical and then uh, 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 sort of talking to people? Um, I think the the physical then, because I'd never really been a sporty kid because I couldn't do the sports I wanted to because I was a girl and I lived in a small rural community. Um, and I think what the fire service did me give, give me was that physicality, which I then kind of maintained, you know. So if I say I run, it makes me sound like I'm a runner and I'm not really. But, you know, ever since I was 21, well, 20 and started training for the fire service, I have regularly moved myself around at faster than walking speed outside. Um, and maintain that kind of physical sense. <laughs> I like that. They they talk a lot about statistics and timings and achievement, and for me, that's not what it's about. It's that sense of self that it's about. Um, but I've always found a sort of physical element. So um, at the point that I was working in more talking environments, I was also working as a sports massage assistant to my husband, who was a sports physio. Um, so there's always been, I think that physicality is really important. So um, I kind of try to continue to engage with that. Very interesting. Well, having spent that big chunk of your life in business and teaching business and mentoring and promoting other people to be successful in business, you then had another change. And this time you decide to do pottery. Now, how did you get from firefighter to potter? And in the in the few years that you've done it, I understand you've become quite good at it. 
I did do a lot of pottery when I was seven, eight, nine, ten, and eleven because my primary school teacher was completely obsessed. So I think it was probably the only creative thing I did for those years. But um, I was always considered not to be the artistic one. In in you know how you know as children you get labelled, don't you? By you know you're the noisy one, you're the quiet one, you're the artistic one. My sister was always considered to be the artistic one because if you gave her paint or pencils or whatever she could draw amazing likenesses of things that she saw um you know so if you gave her a picture of a watercolor or a picture of a hedge or you know your cat um she could create something that looked exactly like it whereas i i don't work like that um so i suppose there was always that creativity in me um but my husband Martin was a world famous potter in the 1980s, um, and then uh, stock market crash of '92. We went back to being a physiotherapist, and then when my mum died, and we moved back up to the Lake District uh, because basically my dad wasn't coping. Uh, you can live on digestive biscuits, but just not for terribly long. Um, we moved back, and Martin said he was going to go back to being a potter. So at this point, I was actually commuting to a job. Uh, in Rutland, um, working from home two days a week, working in the office three days a week, driving four and a half hours on a Tuesday morning, a completely lunatic way to live, but seemed pretty doable at the time. Um, And it became obvious that what the business wanted and what the business uh, was willing to commit to and what it needed to do were all slightly asymmetric. And um, they very kindly helped me make myself redundant. So whilst I was recovering from my fake grown-up years, um, I'd go and sit in the pottery studio with Martin, and I started playing, because clay is amazingly therapeutic and, and amazingly good for that sense of enacting your own environment, because it moves under your hands and you get that instant feedback, and it's visceral and wonderful. Um, so I was playing and I was kind of, I decided my my plan would be I would help Martin run the business and I would get a part-time job and that would give me time and energy to uh, care for and enjoy, you know, whatever years left I had with my dad. Um, and then we had an open studio event, which I'd, I'd marketed um, and kind of, we had a lot of lovely people come into the studio. One of them said, can I buy that? And I said, no, I made that. I'm not a potter. And he said, Siobhan, I've been collecting ceramics for 35 years. You are a potter. I've never seen anything like it. I'll give you £100. How did your husband feel about you stepping into his world? And actually, you know, he was, as you said, this very renowned potter. And then you said, I'll have a go. And then turns out you're really talented and really good at it. Was he pleased or was he a bit kind of... You're in my space. Oh, my husband is um, is well chosen. You know, I didn't leave it to being uh, over 40 to get married for the first time uh, and not choose well. Um, my husband, from the first day we met and we were talking about his career as a potter, said, I think you would get on really well with Clay. And from the first moment that I sold that pot to, you know, a guy who is still, I mean, he's in his 80s. He's still a massive supporter. He's the closest I've got to a patron. He's brilliant with us. Um, And Martin uh, said from that very first moment, you are going to be outselling me inside two years. And his attitude is that's brilliant because he just has to do the stuff that makes him happy and I can make the stuff that brings us more money. So he's very pleased, all in all. Uh, For those who haven't seen your pottery, I mean, they, they they are very 
Chinese and Japanese in style. And they've got this, as you say, some of them have got this gilt coloured. And they and what I want to ask you is for those who haven't seen them, um, how would you describe them and where do you get your materials from? There's a very famous glaze called Temaku, which uh, is a Japanese glaze. It's brown, it's gorgeous, it's rich, it's honey-coloured, it's cocoa-coloured. It's, you know, it's just lovely. Um, and potters all over the world have tried to recreate this with, you know, 4,000 different synthetic materials and this recipe and that recipe. And, oh, if you tweak this by 0.05 of a percent of the recipe. But actually, the original Temaku was just made by grinding up pebbles from the bottom of the stream. Uh, so we decided it would be quite lovely to see what would happen if we went to doing that. So that is effectively what we do. So when we work with a Michelin-starred chef, we try and make sure the glazes tell the same story as their food. So we use materials. All ceramic glaze is effectively a mixture of stone, clay and ash of some sort. So pretty much if you can grind it to a powder or set fire to it, there's a good chance we can make a glaze out of it. My work is, uh, people describe it as dragon eggs or broken eggs. or um, So they're loosely spherical forms with different skylines. Um, and for me, they're a, a comment on the fact that when you look at a person or you look at uh, the natural world, Wherever you stand to look at that person alters what you see. Wherever you stand to look at that landscape alters what you see. So living in the Lake District, we get a lot of people going, oh, that's my favourite view of the Langdales or, you know, name your set of hills. But of course, if you live at 90 degrees from that view, you still have a view of the Langdales. It's just not the one that, you know, is on that particular postcard. Um, so my work's spherical, so you can walk around it, you can move it, you will always see a different skyline, the pot will always tell a different story. And my gilding of the interiors um, is very much about the fact that it always pays to look inside, you know, be that ourselves, another person or the landscape. There are always hidden stories. Um, and that if we remember to look for them, then our lives become brighter and more meaningful. Interesting that you started off trying to put fire out and now you're using fire to mould clay to make your pots. Who who moulded you? I've been fantastically lucky. I'm adopted and I was adopted by two glorious people who were quite startled to have adopted an extrovert when they are both were both introverts. So I was adopted by a high energy elementary particle phys physicist and a comparative plant ecologist who um, were very quiet and very well spoken and very gentle and Oxbridge educated, and they adopted me. Um, so it was a bit like kind of Piglet and, and Roo um, adopting Tigger. Um, and my mum always said she thought that had been a, a very good thing because she, she believed that she'd seen the world from different perspectives as a result of that. I think my dad remained slightly more bemused, um, but one of the last things he ever said to me was, I've come to realise that you're very good at working out what might be possible and then making it happen. I've not been so good at that. I work out what I think might be possible and only ask questions about that. Did you ever know what happened to your, your birth parents? Oh, I'm way too nosy to not find out. Um, so I always knew I was adopted. I celebrate my adoption day like a birthday. Um, it's much more important to me than my birthday because it's the day that my life became the life that I've lived, if you see what I mean. Because up until up until that date in November... I was effectively on sale or return. 
So I met my birth mother when I was 19 and my birth father when I was 22. And we are still in touch. We speak reasonably regularly. I never felt that I was lacking parents, but uh, it is just strange. I knew I'd been born in London. We spent every Christmas in London when I was small. Um, and that sense that I might walk past one of the people who had created me and not recognise them felt a bit strange. And then I always felt quite strongly that they might wonder what had happened to me and wouldn't it be nice if I could tell them that I'd had a nice life and they'd made a good decision. My sister's death, um, just a bit over three years ago, my, my baby sister's death, I mean, she was 42, but, you know, she's always my baby sister. Uh, I think that that's given me an even greater sense of the importantness of, of coping because the reality is that, you know, my, my sister died as a result of a, an array of mental health challenges, which effectively meant that she didn't really eat and that she did really drink. Um, and I saw her getting less and less joy from the world. and I. I kind of think that now she's died it almost feels like her legacy through me has to be to commit to getting joy from the world and almost live the joys that she was unable to do even when she was alive and that now she's dead she 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 will never get that chance again so um i think that's kind of almost crystallized some of the things that have probably been important all along and have given me uh, perhaps that bit of extra courage and that bit of extra conviction because I'm not just doing it for me, I'm doing it for her memory, for my mum's memory, for my dad's memory. You know, I, I am the legacy of my family and, and that feels important and and at this distance like a pretty positive thing to come from it all. Maybe because of your firefighting days, you you can or you choose to take life very much in your stride have you ever had to face a health challenge or a big challenge in your life that you've drawn on your previous experience from to get over it? I think there was a phase where I really wanted to get a properly big grown-up London consultancy job and I kept applying, I kept applying and I'd get through to the last round and HR departments across London um, found themselves able to cope without me. Um, and that was really difficult because that, kind of fundamentally attacked my sense that I could achieve anything I put my mind to and and sort of re-engineering that in my own head um, and remembering that uh, I was never going to be defined by a job that you know there was more to me and more to my life that was really really tough I kind of struggled a bit with my mental health at the end of my uh, time in you know, my fake grown-up time, that sense that I hadn't managed to change the world as I wanted to um, within that environment was pretty frustrating. Um, and I think that probably is where some of the stuff that's gone into my work um, as, a, as a ceramic artist has kind of helped so much because it just helped process that sense of it and kind of, you know, there is something so much more real about what I'm doing now than anything I've done before. Um, that however, you know, however many sort of bumpy bits they've, be, they've been, you know, my life was never in danger and I am, I know, 
I know I have the resilience to kind of go and do something different or something new or, you know, something more exciting, or I will eventually just get bored of being, you know, uh, doing whatever I'm doing and, and do something new. I I really loved it when you said to me, I did it because someone told me I couldn't. <laughs> what advice would you give to people who are too nervous to do the same? That it probably isn't going to kill you to give it a go. Um, um, you should. I'm a big believer that, that saying yes is a much more interesting alternative than saying no. You know, analyse it. Is it going to genuinely, you know, physically hurt or endanger you if it's not then it's possibly worth giving a go and um i realized there was a moment about nine years ago where i realized what a hypocrite i was because i just finished teaching um some communications and networking skills to a mixture of uh masters and phd students and i got a phone call from the local chamber of commerce saying hi siobhan we're looking for people that will take part in 10 minutes of stand-up comedy would you be willing to give it a go and i went don't be ridiculous. That would be horrible. Um, I'll try and find someone that could, but, you know, no, it's not for me. And they've said, but, you know, you know, lots of people. We're looking for people that people would come and see, that people would buy tickets for. You'd have to raise sponsorship. And I went, no, I just can't bear it. And no, thanks very much for asking, but it's not for me. And I went home that night and kind of went, hang on, you just finished telling those students that actually introducing themselves to a stranger was not going to kill them. Um, that that standing up and giving a presentation was not actually going to physically harm them and therefore trying, you know, was probably worth a go. And I thought, you hypocrite. So I kind of created in my mind um, what the worst case scenario would be. Um, and the worst case scenario for me was that I was going to be incredibly unamusing, that nobody would laugh, that I would then have some sort of panic attack. I've never had a panic attack in my life, but creating the worst case scenario in my head that I have some sort of panic attack, I might throw up on my own feet, I might then be dragged off stage unconscious. Well, if I'd raised money for a cancer charity, and if I had not been a hypocrite, then I could live with that as a worst case scenario. And actually, you know, I still wouldn't be someone that was dying of cancer, someone who died of cancer. And then completely ironically, my mum had been given a terminal cancer diagnosis the previous week. Um, so. That was October, the middle of November. I stood up on stage in front of 500 people at City Hall in Sheffield and did 10 minutes of stand-up comedy about the fact my mum was dying. Um, and I had a lovely time. And my mum thought it was funny. And my sister cheered so much and so long they thought she'd won the raffle 10 minutes later. Um, but it turned out she was just really drunk and really proud. You certainly made me laugh throughout our conversation, I must say. Now, what do you wish your younger self knew that you know now? It will be okay, that it is all okay. And actually, you know, being yourself, even if that doesn't always feel like it's as valued as you might want it to be, particularly when, when you're young, um, is probably the best way through it. Because if you can stay in touch with the person that you are um, and you like the person that you are, the rest of it's just pretty much bullshit. Siobhan Newton, I can definitely say that you have been there and done that. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening to Being There, Done That with me, Susan Osman. 
Visit us on btdtshow.com for more interviews with dynamic women. And I'd love to hear from you as well, so please leave us a review and subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. These are words of respect. How can you tell when you're really in love? And look how flaky it is. The girls weigh each portion of food they select. The Been There, Done That show is brought to you by Dan Hall at Pup Media Consultancy. We can still have a lot of fun, can't we? Your manners are showing. I'm a princess. Mabel loves cooking and does it well. Overweight makes an individual undesirable. Lovely stockings. And you think that's all that matters?